Hey, good people, this is your N.I. Dom, back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I'm not sure um, how I'm going to start. It's either, I'm starting, I have two starting points, um, but they're not separate. They're connected. They're not two different thoughts. They are two different entrance points into the same reflection. One is framed as the darker side or the dark side. I think that's a better way of saying it. The dark side. And another way to enter into this reflection is by saying confession. Confession. Both of these uh, framings relate to um, a conversation I want to have with you all as a follow-up to the reflection I did yesterday. I did a reflection yesterday called Kissing Frogs. And in that reflection, I talk about a conversation I had this week that revealed a real challenge that I have. A real challenge of not of being a thinking woman, a thinker woman, using the Myers-Briggs system, a thinker woman, and having introverted feeling, a tertiary, a, a tertiary function, a tertiary feeling function that's introverted. And those seem like they're connected, but they do bring their own separate challenges. Being a thinker woman and then having uh, a feeling function, a tertiary feeling function as introverted. And when I got to the end of that reflection, which was a good, it was a good reflection for me. I haven't gone back to listen to it. And usually when I go back and listen to it, I listen to it through the lens of the listener. I haven't done that yet. But it felt good for me to flush out that conversation that I had earlier this week. And then that conversation I had with somebody at the job that is, has been challenging for me. Externally challenging and internally as relating to my own values and convictions. I had a follow-up conversation uh, with my mother about it. And that wasn't difficult. It was just sad. It was just sad because it just reinforced the struggle that I've had my entire life as being a thinker woman with tertiary, with a tertiary feeling function as introverted. And so in many ways, that reflection was good because I, as a pro- I'm a problem solver. You can't solve a problem that you can't name. Um, but as I got to the end of that reflection, I, I said, I remember saying, you guys, I can't put a bow on it. I, I really, and I forced myself to have an ending that just didn't feel good. I don't feel that, I don't feel that ending was honest or, I don't know. It wasn't dishonest. It was just, it, it wasn't, it was missing something. Um, and then a darkness hit me later in the day. 
and that darkness is on me now and I want to con- I want to talk to you guys about it in real time okay I want you to know what it looks like when I'm in a dark space so all right if you're new to this project this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds I do so by using personality theory the two theories that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram, pushing those two systems together. I identify as an INTJ8. Also, I identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of 30 years. About half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into tenets of critical race feminism, which means I have an intellectual sensitivity to race, social constructs such as race, class, gender, sexuality, to name a few. And all of those identities will show up in how I process my inner and my outer worlds. This project is unedited, is unscripted to know more about it or me. Go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. You guys, I went over five minutes by two seconds. It's been a long time. I've been able to honor that five-minute rule with my uh, one listener friend. Uh, here's this particular reflection. It was, uh, I think about him when I um, start because, you know, he gave me some real honest feedback about me doing the disclaimers at about 20 minutes in or 30 minutes in because that's what I was doing initially before I can get a rhythm into this project. And I would start the reflection and expound on it. And then I do my reflection. And that actually happened today. Like I was giving you more context than you needed. And that's why I went over five minutes, but just by a couple of seconds. So what are you going to do? But anyway, <laughs> so um, I want to tell you I'm outside walking. I've just dropped my pace because usually when I do these reflections and I'm walking outside, I'm breathy and I don't like the way it sounds like I'm out of breath. <laughs> so you're going to have to be, you know, be patient with that. You should also hear birds. I'm at a point in the walk where I'm not walking with traffic, not a lot of traffic. But that is going to happen in about 15 minutes, unless I take a different route. Um, Let me tell you real quick, I'm also walking my two dogs, and there are other dogs out here, so there will will be some random barking, (laughs) and I will try to catch that, hit the pause button as I can, but just in case I don't, okay? All right, y'all. So I needed to do this walk this morning. Last night was pretty tough. Um, and I wonder if that reflection that I did with you yesterday, I wonder if it ushered in the darkness. I, like, I really wonder if I hadn't done that reflection. Would I have had that darkness come on me? In that reflection yesterday, I just, um, I put things into perspective Things became clearer and in focus, but it wasn't really positive. You know, the reality is, um, or the way I'm understanding it today, I might, you know, I pray to have a different perspective on it. But right now, the perspective that I have is that there's been this thing 
um, there's been this experience of being isolated and judged, um, problematized, um, all kinds of negativity, abandoned, rejected, you know, and oftentimes I center most of that as relating to intergenerational trauma. You know, one of the things I realize is that I don't talk to you guys often. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> I want to say I don't talk to you often about intergenerational trauma. I mention it, but I don't really, I don't really spend a lot of time unpacking that. But I guess that's not true, huh? I go in waves, like I go in waves around talking about race. Right, so when I think about those disclaimers, they they influence my my understanding of the world, my experiences with the world, and I guess it depends on the bubble that I'm in. I usually, when I'm traveling on for vacation, I'm usually with family, so intergenerational trauma comes up then, <laughs> um, because of, of the work that I've been doing over the last few years. Uh, where race is really like at the table, like overtly at the table, not just as an experience, but as an academic and pr- academic and professional concept. So I, it has come up more in this project than I had originally anticipated. Like I, you know, I really wanted this place to be, a, uh, this project to be a place I could come. My dog is about to bark. Hold on one second. Come on. I really wanted this project to be a a place where I can come and be unraced. I don't want to talk about race because it's delimiting. It's delimiting. It's dehumanizing. It's unempowering, you know. Um, But in an environment... (laughs) That where everything is institutionally based on race, that, you know, it's just not an honest, it's just not honest. Hold on a second. Okay, that was one. Active barking. I hit the pause button. But the dog is still, there are two dogs still nearby, so this is going to, I got to, got to get out of the dog zone. So you're going to um, um, hear some barking. You're probably like, well, why don't you? keep us paused until you get out of the dog zone. But my home, my neighborhood is a dog zone. I live in a dog uh, friendly neighborhood so that's what it is. So, But most institutions are in some ways uh, connected to race and so while we don't have signs out on bathrooms and that say whites only and we don't have rules that tell you black people that they have to sit in the back of the bus and we don't have laws that prevent homeowners from selling their homes to black people which was a is a law in a neighboring town that just came off the books um where i live a lot of those practices still are very much active alive And that's because our social world has four layers of the socialization process. There's the structural, cultural, interpersonal, and intra. 
And so it looks like we don't have access to, we don't have structural racism anymore. And that's not true. Um, it just, it's, it's enacted differently. And this is not what this project is. This is not what this episode is about. So I'm going to come out of that. I don't even know why I got down that. Why did I go there? I was talking about, uh, it was something about yesterday. I don't know, you guys. I just, it'll come back to me. I don't know what I was talking about. It was a reason why I brought race up. Maybe I was trying to talk about when these disclaimers show up and how they show up in my job. And that was a stupid rabbit hole. So let me come back. So anyway, last night, yesterday, yesterday, putting that, having a frame to explain that life experience of being misunderstood, judged, problematized, alienated, rejected, abandoned. I think, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it was a new frame, a clearer frame, or... If I'm just, you know, in a season, I, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be hard to understand that, you know, I'm dealing with a family member who's facing life or death. That's devastating. It's overwhelming. I am trying to learn who I'm supposed to be to that person. So I'm having all kinds of internal conflict around values that I hold deep convictions that I have about how to show up for this person, how to show up in the family of intergenerational trauma, how to take care of myself. Do I have a right to take care of myself? What does taking care of myself look like? So I'm going to go more into that later. Or maybe. Who knows what the hell I'm going to talk about today. But... Um, <laughs> Sorry, because some of you might be like, why do we hit a, why would you come to a podcast <laughs> to get depressed? <laughs> why would you hit the play button <laughs> to be depressed? Oh my God, that is so ridiculous when I think about it. Like I'm literally giving you guys sadness. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know why I found that funny because I'm just thinking, how this might be sounding as you're listening. Like, you literally hit the play button to listen to some lady t- talk about sadness. Oh, Lord, that's funny. Okay, let me bring it back. <laughs> okay. So, oh, that was a good laugh. I needed that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But, um... So it would it wouldn't be surprising for me to for me to have to just say, hey, you just this is just a really intense time. You are gonna be sad, and maybe that's all that is. Maybe that's all it is, and maybe I'm just projecting it, projecting that sadness onto that reflection I did yesterday on kissing frogs, but. I think that that reflection yesterday 
is contributing to the sadness because I have clarity. That reflection yesterday gave me clarity. And I don't know what to do with it. As a problem solver, I don't know what to do with it. And that could be, maybe that's making me sad. It's not the damn episode, but the fact that I don't know what to do with it. I don't know. I don't know. So, you know, I had to really, really get last night. I mean, and I did something unhealthy. I didn't have any adult beverage. But I went and made carbs. You know, I'm on a, I've been talking about weighing, weighing down again. And finally back into a rhythm of being healthy, like walking and eating right and and yesterday or early today because it was early this morning at about 12 31 o'clock i made some pasta with lots of cheese if i would have had chocolate in the house i would have eaten chocolate and it was so weird because i was like and i have some adult beverages in the house and I, was, I could have done that. I didn't want it. I genuinely didn't want the adult beverage. I, but I wanted some carbs. <laughs> I wanted some pasta. And I was like, why does this idea of eating pasta right now, why does it sound like a great idea? Like just thinking about the cup of the pasta was making made me feel better. Hold on a second. Alright you guys, I'm on a busy street, so it's not a high traffic time of the day, but the, the sound quality should sound different. I think what I'm going to do is try to find a way to reroute myself, uh, but so the next 10 to 15 minutes it should sound busy. But anyway, um, yeah, just thinking about that day in pasta last night, it started making me feel better. And I knew, I knew it was an unhealthy coping strategy. I was like, this is an unhealthy coping strategy. And had I, had it been earlier in the day, I would have gone for a walk. Cause I know walking makes me feel better when I'm low. But it was 1230 in the morning. I didn't want to do that. Second, so um, the pasta was the next best thing. So I made the pasta, put excessive cheese in it. I didn't put a lot of butter in it, so that because I was going to, and then I cut the butter in half. I'm like, okay, let's try to have some discipline here. Let's try, and um, and I ate it. I, and um, put on a, um, I watched a t- like a, a show that was, I don't like crime shows per se because of the crime, but I like shows that are um, like um, investigatory, like trying to figure it out. So it was really helpful for me to give my brain something else to process. So between the carbs and the crime, <laughs> I was able to, you know, distance myself from those emotions. And I fell asleep. 
And then I woke up this morning and they were not completely back. But they weren't, those emotions weren't completely gone. And so I was like, well, let's get up and let's go get some endorphins and take a walk. And, um, and so what I tried to do before I got up out of the bed is I tried to name the things that were making me sad. Like name them. I couldn't do that last night. Last night it was just so intense and so compressed. I couldn't separate the, couldn't separate and name the emotions. But I was able to do that this morning. Um, and once I named those emotions, I was like, uh, I felt a little convicted. Like, you ended that reflection yesterday acting like everything is okay. You know, like, oh, we just got to, you got to face the discomfort. And you've got to, what did I say? You got to disrupt and be okay, be okay with the discomfort that comes from the disruption. So you can have opportunities. And that's true. I still believe that. Um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be disrupting, though, to be honest with you. Like, I think that's where I, I wanted to go yesterday. And I didn't know that I didn't I don't I didn't really I intuitively wanted to go there but I didn't consciously understand that I wanted to go there or how to get there so I just I don't like the way the, yesterday's episode ended I really don't not that I think it was terrible I just don't think it ended it didn't really end the reflection appropriate the way I wanted it to end like with some real real clarity towards the end had clarity throughout what the problem was. I didn't have clarity on the solution. That's what it was. I didn't have clarity, excuse me, on the solution. So this morning I was able to identify five, maybe six things that are bother me. They're all not located in yesterday's reflection. It, it, but it surrounds yesterday's reflection. It tells me that yesterday's reflection is only a part of the larger puzzle. So, and it, that makes, it looks pretty dark when you put those puzzle pieces on the table and I don't, is a car, hold on a second. When you put those puzzle pieces on the table and I don't know how to put them together to create a positive picture. And what if what if it's not about being a positive picture? What if putting those puzzle pieces together to create a picture is just the, is what the work is? Forget whether that picture is positive or not. Who says it has to be positive? I sure as hell would like for it to be positive. But is that naive thinking? You know, is that positive, you know, thinking? Sometimes positive ideology can be annoying because it's like, good grief, the world isn't always positive. Get over it, you know. But so I just think the picture I see is pretty dark. And is that the solution? Is the solution just accepting?
accepting its darkness. And then so what? Now what? I don't have an answer to that, y'all. And I don't. And I'm like, if that's the case, I'm not going to. I can't see myself continuing this project because I am not going to keep coming to you all talking about dark things. I'm just, I'm just not. I'm okay with, I'm okay with it, but when I'm like sad, confused, heavy, angry. I mean, those are, those are emotions I had to learn to be okay with, with this project. I didn't always feel okay to do that, but I'm fairly okay now. But that will not be the only thing I do in this project. It just will not. And I can't help but to keep laughing about it because I just think who would come to a podcast to listen to that? Oh, goodness gracious. All right. Hold on a second. So let me um, tell you those puzzle pieces. <clears throat> and um, and I'll try to connect them with yesterday's reflection as much as it naturally feels right to do because I don't want to make this a reflection as a part two to that like I'm not going to try to recreate reroute do that ending okay so um one is that this conversation I had with this the young lady from the job who's another black woman who's also a person that's committed to uh, racial justice and equity um, I'm really sitting with the fact that that's an un, it's not the conversation did not hasn't been resolved to my satisfaction. It's not resolved to my satisfaction. But it is going to be resolved to... to to my partial satisfaction. And my partial satisfaction is that I'm committed, like I keep saying, I'm committed to... Well, I've been saying I'm committed to do right by her, but I didn't know really what that meant for her and now that I know I better understand what the problem is from her angle then I have to be not me that's what I'm going to have to do to solve the problem with her to not be me and that's sad for me and it's sadder it's sad it's more sad than I want to admit right because you know when I talk to my friends about it they're like just so what right people aren't gonna like you and so that's I've had people who've not liked me I don't think that I'm a person that lose sleep over it so I don't understand what that is about her I don't know yet what that is and I'm is I think maybe because she doesn't like me not because of what I stand for she doesn't like me because of who I am so I think as a type 8 maybe an INTJ 8 I understand people aren't going to like me because of what I am committed to 
And I'm, I'm unyielding in that. I really am. I'm unyielding in terms of my commitments around empowerment and justice, change. I'm okay with people not liking me because I'm black. I, I, I was raised to understand that. I'm okay with people not liking me because I'm a woman. Although it doesn't translate to not liking me. It translates to you having a perception of me to be something that I'm not. I'm okay with that. But this is a woman that is about justice. And I'm having a really hard time accepting that. I'm having a hard time not accepting it. I'm having a hard time reconciling that in my head. That she's about justice. She's about racial justice. And she is not committed to reconciling with me. Genuinely, she's not. That's very, very hard. Hard. And I think the reason why that's hard is because it connects to some familial stuff. Because this is what I was raised with. I was raised with being told that I was both unlikable but loved. I was literally, that, those were literal words shared with me. You're unlikable. I love you because I have to. Now, I don't tell you that often, you know, you listening to me, if you've been following this project. I may have mentioned this once or twice, but it's just not something I talk about anymore. I used to talk about it a lot. It was just something I couldn't resolve. I, I couldn't understand that. How could somebody say, I love you, but I don't like you? You're unlikable. I'm love I love you because I have to. How do you tell a child that? <laughs> you know, I'm an educator. Like how do you tell a child that? How do you do that? And how I've been able to reconcile that is through the lens of intergenerational trauma. Only someone Wrestling with their own trauma would say that to a child. That that doesn't, you know, that's, I don't think a healthy person would say that to a child. So I've been able to make peace with that. Not that it's okay. But I, I no longer have cognitive dissonance over it. I used to have cognitive dissonance. And that is what is a, that's what will send me spiraling. I will become unhinged when things just don't make sense. Like, I don't care. As long as I can get it to make sense, I'm okay. When it don't make sense, I just don't know what to do with myself. So once I was able to find, after years, years, I'm talking years, like I just got that level of understanding within the last five years. And that's a stretch. Why that person said that to me. On repeat. 
and that connects to other things this person did to punish me for not being something that I was supposed to be. So I don't want to get into that today. That's going to be in my book. All the ways I was punished for being me. By adults. Um, who were supposed to take keep me safe in the world. See, this is where it gets tough for me. Because it sounds like I'm saying, oh, pity me. Oh, oh, look at how bad I have it. No, I was, you know, I was talking to a... A friend of mine who came from a similar home, but not exact. And she was not physically taken care of. And I was like, no, no, I was physically taken care of. And that is where that gets complicated. Because you oftentimes when we talk about abuse and abandonment, we use, we limit it to the physical understandings we're just starting to understand what that means that when you can be psychologically verbally emotionally abused and abandoned we're just starting to factor that in at least in education you know you hear me talking about i came back into my industry into employment rather five years ago when you get into these uh larger there's a bus that just passed sorry I'm on a busy street. I got to figure out how to get off the street. Um, when you get into these uh, uh, large school districts, they require you to watch like videos on how do you how do you what are signs that a child is abused, so that we can look out for it and we'll know what to do with it. Um. And I did this 30 years ago when I was starting my career. But the videos I listened to five years ago as I re-entered into this into a traditional employment, those videos are those videos are different. They're starting to factor in the psychological and the emotional components. So that's good. That's progress. There was a time when we didn't understand physical abuse. You know, so now we're starting to unpack other kinds of abuse. So in my mind, you guys, I don't sit around and process that, nor do I need to feel people to feel sorry for me about that. There was a time I really needed. Okay, I'm in a, there's a high traffic period. I'm getting ready to turn. Just, just give me about three minutes, you guys. Okay, bear with me for three minutes. Um, but there was a time where I really, really needed someone to understand what I was going through someone to be a safe space so I could talk through it someone who, to advise me I met this young lady um, when I lived in the south and our situations were very similar our childhoods were similar but again different because while she didn't have anybody in her family uh, to protect her from that verbal psychological emotional stuff she had a teacher. She had a teacher who told her that what she was experiencing was not okay. 
So that teacher spoke life into her. Now, if my family heard me, heard this episode, they would be very angry with me. Because they would say, I'm lying. I'm lying. I'm making things up. That's another part. That's another thing to wrestle with. When the people you love and the people you trust, when they invalidate that experience. So that's a form of gaslighting that I don't typically like to use. That's a buzzword, so I don't like to use it. But it's it is an, it's a part of that whole toxic family structure, or I could call it the wounded family structure. That might feel better for me to say it that way. So I will say that when I was younger, and I would go to family members, that there was some listening more than now. There was some listening. But I suspect that that listening was a function of the system um, more than it was a function of supporting me. It was a function of the intergenerational trauma than it was with me. But that's, oh, she's got an ice skating rink in the back of her house. Oh, that's interesting. I'm sorry. I'm taking a new path because I'm trying to get off the traffic. And I see somebody had built a ice skating rink. I live in the cold climate, y'all. So anyway, that was interesting. But anyway, so this friend of mine that I was telling you when I, that I met when, when I lived in the South, she had a confidence that the way she was raised was just not right. She was very clear on that. It was just a matter of when she could get out of it. That's not, that's not my reality. I didn't, I wasn't raised with a clear sense of right and wrong where that's concerned. As a matter of fact, I was raised to believe that I'm wrong for thinking that that's bad. For thinking that some ways of interacting and engaging is unhealthy. And I'm, I'm problematized for that. Anyway, I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't have a need to unpro, uh, unpack that. I, I don't feel like I have a need to. Let me clean that up. But this young lady at the job, I think it's triggering that. It's bringing a lot of that up. Of having been told these things about me that are unforgivable for her. All while she can stand the moral high ground of being down for racial equity. So she's not saying I love you, but I don't like you, but she kind of is, right? She's like, I look out for you. I defend you when other, when other people talk about you, but it feels very similar to me. So it's triggering me. It's triggering those places that I feel like I've resolved. So did I not really resolve them? I don't know. Doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good either to think that I possibly did not resolve that stuff. 
so. So my resolution to take care of her, even though it won't be reciprocal, because I'm in a leadership position and I'm her supervisor and that's what I have to do while I'm resolved to do that, it's bringing up deep sadness for me because that's not real a real resolution for me. But I hold a couple of convictions here, you know, my convictions as a leader and as a racial justice person, I'm going to do it. And that's going to, it's going to make me feel good to do it. But my convictions on liberation and healing and not putting myself in harmful spaces. Oh, well. And then I'm beating my, then there's a part of me that wants to beat myself up. Like, why, this is not, this is not really what you're framing it as. It's not real. That's not a real problem. And that's all a sign. That's all a, those are indicators of people who have suffered through that kind of psychological abuse coming up. You can't, you can't trust your own freaking reality. Your own subjectivity. You can't. Because it's not good enough. Someone else's subjectivity is relevant. Someone else's subjectivity trumps yours. So. That was incomplete yesterday. I didn't talk about that. I didn't know to talk about it though you guys. It wasn't like. It wasn't like I was withholding it. It's just so pushed down and repressed. I didn't understand it was there. So now I do. So there's that. There's that. <laughs> That's a big part of it. That's a big part of the sadness. All of that's coming up. Now you take that and you couple that with having to be a caregiver in this environment that really fostered this emotional woundedness and I remember you know I go back and I listen to those the, my com, my commitments I recorded it you guys can go back I think it's the second episode for the season and I'm like I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it and no matter what I am going to do it and I'm going to be proud of it because those are my convictions and then the next day I came back I said let me tell you the truth Some of that is about being programmed to do that and not take care of myself. So I'm wrestling with that. That's a wrestling. I told my heart coach, I talked about dual care. Dual care. Taking care of that person and taking care of myself. And that sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds good. But can you do it? Can I really take care of that person that's surrounded by this network that can, that has a way of psychologically and emotionally engaging that doesn't match my beliefs about what love 
and care look like? So I don't feel um, I don't feel overwhelmed about the familial stuff. I feel sad. I feel confused, but I don't feel I don't feel as much despair about that that I feel about this work situ- situation with this young lady, and that's interesting to me. But I think that's because I'm transferring that energy from my family to her. And that's not fair to her. Now she would hear me say this and she would say, see, I told you you're picking on me. I don't feel like that's what I'm doing. What I, but what I am doing is I'm not indulging her. I'm not indulging her in some habits that I think are not healthy. And that's a that's that's a fair question. Who am I? Who determines what habits are healthy for an organization and who doesn't? Like do I have a right to say some of the things that she does are are problematic? According to her, I don't. But according to my boss and me being a supervisor, I do. So the boundaries that I set with her, um, the redirections, she feels that that's me singling her out. So maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. But we're going to watch, watch me prove I can do it. <laughs> Either way, I'm going to lose. Because then she could say, well, I'm not giving her access. I mean, I'm not giving her a seat at the table. I'm done. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just, it's, it's, it is. And then that speaks to another situation. I don't have somebody I can go to for help. And here's why. Everybody above me, they're white. The moment I activate somebody for help is then me creating more harm for this young woman because I'm activating white power. It is complicated. And you listening to me, you'd be like, oh, I could just imagine some of the things my listeners might be thinking right now. But it's complicated for me. But then again, this is familial. Because I was raised to protect the people who verbally and emotionally harmed me. So, I hate talking like this. As an 8, just so you guys know, as a type 8, I don't like this at all. But I also know the growth of a type 8, it's really dependent upon me being able to sit with some of the shitty parts of me. The not-so-polished parts of me. And so that's just, it is what it is. The other complication, that another point of sadness for me is that my uh, boss slash peer 
is choosing when she's boss and choosing when she's peer in a way that's inconsistent, unpredictable, and I can't, I, I don't even know how to maneuver in that. So I keep saying to her is that I don't think this peership is going to work. I'm not your peer. Although I can see why it's beneficial to her. Because then she gets the access, certain some of my strengths and skills that she doesn't have. So with me being a peer, some of the skills that I have around executive leadership can come to the table. And to be fair to her, in part, I told her I will not be and ex- use my executive skills as a subordinate. So her thinking is, okay, you don't have to use your executive skills as a subordinate. I'll take you out of the subordinate role and I'll make you a peer and we'll be co-directors. Simple fix, right? No. Because we're not. We're co-directors in name, but she's still embedded with the power structures that make her the lead director. So it's a it's it's excuse me, I'm gonna curse, so if you have kids around you need to stop because I'm there's no other word for this. It's a psychological fuck fest. That's what it is. Then you get to say that I'm your peer so you can access certain skills of mine Well, it's, it's, you're still doing everything that you were doing, and I can't. And you're not accountable to me, because when you're co-directors, you're accountable to each other. She's not. I don't. And and it's not. It's and the the power web that she has around her is a messy one. It's not even an effective power web where I can then go to those that I can say, okay, well, you really are my superior. Then I'm going to go to your superior. It's not a real clear hierarchy. I wouldn't want to do that anyway. But it, even if I did, if, who would I go to? It's, so that's a whole mess. It's a whole mess. So there is no place for me to get any help in that structure. So my resolve is is to just do the best I can and and to accept the situation for what it is. And this is where I've been thinking about the FI. I really wish I didn't have it because my sister is like, just play the game. Just play the game. And I'm trying to do that. But my, I don't get up and work to play a game. I get up and work to have an impact. The idea of going to a job every day to play a game is just awful to me. I'm an impact person. But can I do it? I I'd I part of I was like, yeah, I can do it. I when it's going to take work. But like last night and this morning, I'm like, should you do it? What is the emotional and spiritual toll that's going to have on you to play this game? And 
especially in an organization that is values driven. You know, you don't talk about racial justice. You don't talk about racial justice and not be committed to certain values for justice. So we're going to talk about it, but we're not going to live it. This is my life's work. This isn't something I just applied to do. You know, if I do it, fine. If I don't, oh, that's fine too. No. So that's grief there. I got to grieve the loss of what I thought, what I was hoping for. And the reality is it's still an INTJ yummy job. That's the other thing that is that needs to be stated. When I first started the job, I kept coming to you guys like, oh, my God, the, God, the job is so yummy, so yummy. I kept saying, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to give it six months. It took eight months to get here. And it is still INTJ yummy. I still can use my, I'm using my skill sets. That's not the problem. There's a conflict of my FI. That's the problem. The conflict isn't with my I and N or my NIT. The conflict is with my FI, my convictions. Is that the end of the world? I don't, I don't, I hope, I mean, I don't know. And that, that, let me, then that leads to another one. Like, what a, I now, and I haven't shared this with you all because there's a, I can't get into it, but technically, technically, I don't have a job next year. None of us do because we're going through a political shift. So that is requiring me to apply for jobs. My heart is still in the job I have now. But there's, 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 there's trouble in paradise. So when I look at the other jobs that are out there, I'm like, oh my God, I got to go through this all over again, getting to know human, other humans. I'm not excited about that. So. The other piece that doesn't make, so I think what I ended up doing this morning is for whatever reason, all of this feels like it's connecting around giftedness for me. Like the sadness that I feel about it all is around giftedness. I have a deep sense of, you know, we don't talk about INTJs with that feeling function, but we do. It's introverted and it's intense, y'all. It's intense. And that's what I was reading this morning about giftedness. It's not just intellectual intensity. It's emotional intensity. And they're together. Let me say it this way. That the intelligence has an emotional pathway. That was deeply interesting when I heard that. And I I can see it. You don't separate those two. And you know when you think of the INTJ, the the, uh, T and the F are in the middle. The, excuse me, T-E-F-I they are on the axis and they're connected in the middle so you do toggle between them they are together it makes perfect sense when they say that INTJs are iconoclastic if I'm saying that right, gifted 
There's so much I want to say about giftedness because, you know, there are different types of giftedness. So INTJs wouldn't be the only types of giftedness. Uh, gifted uh, individuals, but it also doesn't mean that every INTJ is gifted. We're more prone to be, right? And I like that giftedness isn't about achievement. It's not even about talent. It's about neural pathways of intensity, complexity, integration. And then what you do with that you can achieve and have talent and all of that. So I have deep feelings. I started having deep feelings last night and deep thinking. They were all happening. And it doesn't paint a pretty picture of what to do with that. I have no idea what to do with it. Yay. Yay me. (laughs) So... If nothing else, this reflection was good because I feel like this was more. I feel like this was more honest. And I'm going to see what what comes of it. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but we'll see. I hope I don't come back tonight or tomorrow with another reflection. Because uh, now twice I've done two back-to-back reflections. And I only have 25 episodes to work with for a season. So y'all better go to my YouTube channel because I might be in a season. That's requiring me to process a lot. So, oh my gosh. You guys, if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. This conversation around really repressed trauma. Repressed trauma, activated trauma, transferred trauma. And I know the giftedness piece at the end was rushed, abridged, truncated. I understand that. I don't have yet the pathways to make the connection between the two. I believe that they are connected, though. There is what's called being twice exceptional or thrice or three times exceptional. And that's when you have these, you have more than one ways that make you uniquely gifted or uniquely sensitive or uniquely knowledgeable. So you could be gifted in ADHD that would make you twice give, twice exceptional. Uh, I saw someone that said uh, uh, gifted ADHD and black. And so I was like, whoa, that's politi- politically bold. You're going to say blackness. Because blackness is not a biological condition. Race is not biological. It is a social construct. But if through that social construct you are having a social experience that's giving you greater uh, access to knowing, greater sensitivity, then okay. And one of the content pieces that I picked up this morning on giftedness um, was just talking about what do you do 
most people think of giftedness as like easy. What do you do when you have a higher appetite for intensity, for complexity, for integration? Which causes us to get bored. And lonely, one one lady said. I've already tweeted it out this morning, so go check it out. Today is the 4th, right? Or the 5th? What is today? Today is the 5th, I'm sorry. The 5th of March, 2023. Go check it out. I tweeted two videos on giftedness. They're, one is like 7 minutes, the other is 15, so they're not long. But people who are gifted deal with with boredom and loneliness. And so I think for me, the connection is with this being gifted to be used a certain way at work, but then be challenged at work because of some family stuff, then to be going through through family and then not really, still not really having the social network around me because I haven't really found my social peers, right? It's all interconnected. It's all interwoven. It's connected. Even if I've done a crappy job at communicating that. So if that interconnectedness, uh, even this, even though it's sloppy and incomplete, if it's, a, if it's a connected to a conversation that you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. If my moving about has caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear it. Might make me happy. <laughs> Give me a hit of a hit of endorphins. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. On Twitter, yourinidom1, Facebook, and YouTube, yourinidom. I'm having a hard time uploading the video that I did uh, on uh, FE. What was it called? The pesky FE. But um, I'm still gonna. I'm still working on it. Just, uh, but I tried to. I tried to get it. Work on it last night, twice yesterday, and I'm still having some problems with the with the just some technical problems. So let's talk about sadness. This is your assignment. You guys, I had you on hold for about three minutes because I was like, "What in the heck am I gonna do for an assignment?" I think we should just talk about sadness because it happens sometimes, right? If I was at home, I would go and look up an article for you all and do a little reading about sadness. It happens. It's a part of the human experience. The question is, when it when is sadness situational? When is it seasonal? And when is it more systemic? Oh, I like that. Three S's. Situational, seasonal, um, and systemic. Really, situational and seasonal could be the same. But what I mean by situational, I mean incidental. Like, it's a day. had a bad day. I'm sad. Season. I'm in a period of sadness. A system, uh, systemic sadness. And there's something deeper at play. And usually that kind of sadness really, you know, you can't really wrestle through that on your own. And you shouldn't wrestle through that on your own. And it's okay. You know, and last last night when I was thinking about those carbs, right? Like, 
You know what I did? I paused though. I was like, okay. Because I had a season of my life 20 years, 20, 30 years ago. That was, it was 30 years ago. That was just scary. And I know what that sadness. I've told you guys that before. I don't, you know, that's like, a, I, you know, I keep an eye out for that. And one thing I was able to say last night is I could see a difference. Because when I was, when I would hit that deep sadness 30 years ago, and it was for a long time, it lasted for about five years. It really intense for five years. And then, you know, it, there was just, it was just a long time. I had no, no self-regulation strategies. I had no coping. I didn't know what the hell it was. I just personalized it all. Something was wrong with me. I was a problem. And that's not how I felt last night. I even had the wherewithal to go, okay, what are some ways? What are some coping strategies? And even though I didn't do the, the I didn't do the healthy thing, right? Going to eat it away wasn't the it wasn't the solution. But I'm gonna tell you I could have I could have cooked a big dinner. I could have gotten in my car and went and got a bunch of chocolate, donuts and I could have done that. My favorite when I'm sad are these little candies that they're orange slices. <laughs> I've done that where I get out of my car, get out of the bed, get in my car. I'm going to get some candy. I didn't do that. So, you know, and I'm not just trying to make myself feel better. I'm like, that was progress. I didn't do any ridiculous phone calls where I call people up and I require them to do, to, to take care of me. Didn't do that. Now, if I thought that there were people I could call that would get it, I would have called them. But I also know what it's like to call people who can't understand and it makes the problem worse. So I knew that I needed to get my mind on something else. I did that and I knew that in the morning I was going to take a walk to get to the morning. Those are some strategies that I employed last night. We all have to have those some strategies on standby. So my question to you would be, what do you do when you get sad? Sad, sad. Okay, you guys, I pushed the pause button again. That's because I'm in a, I'm walking by a highway. <laughs> so, but I forgot about five more minutes before. I'm going to be bringing closure, so I guess we're going to end with the traffic as the noise. But when I when I hit the pause button, I was just like, man, you know, I was just aware of how transparent I am right now, how forthcoming. And that's a conviction of mine, right? I could have, I could not share this. Will I regret it? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out if I regret it. But as I've thought about this project almost three years now, I have learned that even when there are difficult topics, that I eventually feel really good about them. They are, they're, they are necessary for my liberation as a breakthrough. So can somebody come and weaponize this? Sure, they could try. 
but I'm growing. So this is a moment in time. And I hope to inspire growth in others. Sometimes I get so annoyed. I sound like a type one. That sounds like something a social one would say. Oh my gosh. Anyway. I feel like I'm in a one season, by the way. It's like a lot of stuff that's happening that's really challenging my beliefs and my convictions. All over the place. There's not one place of reprieve. I'm being challenged on my deep convictions. And maybe that's what this season is about. Maybe it's not about trauma. Maybe it's, you know, requiring me to grow up some more. Maybe I haven't done some grown up things I need to do. Maybe I haven't confronted some things I need to confront. I'm okay. I'm here for it. That sure as hell would feel better than to think that I'm dealing with some repressed trauma, (laughs) you know? So I'm excited to see where this is going to take me. But for you, because this is about you right now, what do you do when you get to that deep sadness? What do you, how do you make meaning out of it? How do you get through it? How do you get through it? And how do you make meaning out of it? How do you grow from it? Or do you? Maybe you've never had that kind of relationship with sadness. Maybe you've never had a growth relationship with sadness. But I'm asking you to consider sadness as instructional for growth. Instructional for growth. It's a data point. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it and through it? From it? (laughs) Okay, you guys understand what I'm saying. How do you get through it and how do you learn from it? What is it telling you? And how do you get through it? Those are two separate questions. They're related. You got to get through it. You have to have strategies to get through it. How do you do that? And how do you make sure that that was a moment of purpose? How do you make purpose out of that moment? For me, I'm always learning and always growing. Another personality type was like, you don't have to learn from me. <laughs> but you're talking to an I, you're listening to an INTJ right now. So just deal with it. I'm asking you to grow from it. Okay. All right, you guys, I think I'm going to go and finish the rest of this walk in silence. It has been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.